Do you want to help reverse environmental challenges? Do you want to help change worker conditions and pay? Do you want to see governments and businesses better serve marginalized communities? Then you want to be a wallet activist. And wallet activism is the subject of today's Queer Money Podcast, episode number 305. Today, we're joined by Tanya Hester of the Our Next Life blog, author of Work Optional and her new book, Wallet Activism. Tanya shares how voting with your dollar can apply to so much more than when you're just at the checkout counter. And don't worry, you can still live frugally and fire. Remember, we make the Queer Money podcast for you. So please post your money questions in the Queer Money Facebook group. We may answer your question in an upcoming episode. Finally, stay tuned until the very end where we'll share how you can qualify to win a free copy of Tanya's new book, Wallet Activism. Now on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Gainbridge sponsors the best, including the Indiana Pacers, Indiana Fever, Indiana 500, and the Queer Money Podcast. That's because Gainbridge believes that dedication is an essential component of success in every community. Visit gainbridge.life today. So welcome, Tanya, to the Queer Money Podcast. We're excited to have you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. This was a really profound book for me to read. I've noticed over the course of the last several years, like stuff isn't getting recycled. Things aren't working out the way that we were told they were going to work out. And so we've tried to do our part in, in, in getting a little bit better with you know, how we manage our day-to-day lives and what impact that has on the environment and society. That reading your book, I'm like, oh my God, we could do so much better. <laughs> we, we have to, to up-level our game. <laughs> so for our listeners and watchers, would you mind explaining what wallet activism is exactly? Yeah. I think of wallet activism as sort of an expanded version of voting with your dollar. So that's an expression I'm sure most of us have heard before or we've said before. But I think that that sort of misrepresents it as being only about spending or purchasing, shopping, that kind of stuff. And I think that we all, in fact, have so much more financial power than we realize or we might feel like we have. And so it's about using all of our forms of financial power to further the cause of justice, however you define that, you know, however that aligns to your values. So it's certainly the shopping piece, but it's also the food we eat, the work we do, where we choose to live, how we conduct ourselves in our neighborhoods, how we give money away, where we save and invest. It's such a huge, expansive topic. Right. Yeah, I don't think that I, anybody has put it into sort of that context for me before where it was so broad. I've heard of the idea of voting with my dollar, but I just really thought about that as I'm voting when I'm standing at the cash register with my money, but there's so much more to that. How do you think that all got lost in sort of our evolution into this consumption society? <laughs> I mean, I think it was on purpose. I, I think so much of what we walk around believing is stuff that has been implanted into our brains by marketers who want to sell us things right. and either want us to think that something that is harmful is good or want us, and this is frankly more common these days, want us to be so overwhelmed by the choices that we just throw our hands up and say, okay, I give in. I'll just do whatever is convenient or whatever sort of feeds the need I have at this moment instead of taking a step back. And so I think a huge part of becoming a wallet activist is really learning to see through all the marketing lies that we're told because we're told them constantly every single day, often by people who we think are on the same side of an issue as us uh, or who seem to mean well. And so it's really, to me, Becoming a wallet activist is learning to spot lies. And once you learn to start spotting them, you see them everywhere. Yeah. And we're going to touch on some of those lies shortly. But I do, to your point of sort of feeling overwhelmed, we're going to touch on the, in the conclusion of this episode. I will say, reading your book, I was like, oh my God, I, humanity is just lost. All we can do is just give up here and, and go to Mars. <laughs> that's, our only, that's our only hope. But you that's have so a, a great analogy at the end of your book that really touched me, especially since we're new puppies, fur daddies. And I think it'll inspire a lot of our, uh, a lot of our listeners and, and watchers. So more specifically, why do you think queer people should care about wallet activism? I mean, I would never try to tell folks who have marginalized identities that I don't share what to think or do. But I think that we all, and I think queer folks have 
a certain lived experience with oppression and being marginalized in certain ways that I think, you know, help make one more empathetic to all forms of injustice, frankly. And I think that there's really a need for all of us just to be more intentional with the choices that we make, both the shopping ones, but also, frankly, the choices not to shop sometimes with withholding support or refusing to vote with that dollar, um, as it were, can be a really powerful act. And I know that this applies to a lot of folks within queer culture and outside of there can sometimes be an emphasis on materialism. I lived in West Hollywood for a lot of years and the arms race of keeping up with the latest trends was really something. And right. You know, so I certainly that's not universal and that I'm not saying that as a stereotype, but just, you know, like in certain places, I think many people can relate to that. It's a good thing to step back and say, oh, wow, actually the thing to do that would be both most ethical, you know, most in line with furthering the cause of justice for exploited workers, for people who are harmed by the pollution from manufacturing, um, from just all kinds of things. The best thing for those folks is also the best thing for my own finances you know, just the act of shopping less is incredibly powerful, um, both for you, for your money, and for the folks who we exploit to get all the cheap stuff we like to have. You know, it's a good reminder that only about 2% of the garment workers in the world are paid a living wage. Mm -hmm. So basically, just about any time you're buying clothing, you're relying on someone who is extremely underpaid, might not have a safe work environment, almost certainly doesn't have a safe work environment. You know, it's a lot of bad stuff where I think if we think about it, we go, well, no, I would never support that on purpose. So it's just good to take that step back and say, oh, okay, this is actually what I'm supporting with that. So you can make some different choices. And um, that doesn't mean that you can't buy anything. You know, it might means maybe we just start focusing more on secondhand or I love calling things vintage uh, rather than <laughs> making them seem like cast-offs. So there, there are all kinds of things that we can do that are just, you know, fairly easy substitutions to still live a good life, um, but rely a whole lot less on exploitation and the types of harmful activities that are, you know, have led to our climate crisis. Right. It's interesting. You mentioned this, the idea of, of being a part of a marginalized community. And oftentimes when we're a part of a marginalized community, we feel othered. We feel like we're left out and we feel like we don't fit in. And I think that that's one of the jobs of marketers is to, if you buy this, you're going to fit in, you're going to be liked by other people, right? So I think as queer folks, as other marginalized communities, oftentimes we can fall into that trap of, I want to fit in. I want to feel the affinity to a broader population. And sadly, in the world we live in today, Swiping the credit card to purchase something is one of the easiest ways to do that, or at least to give ourselves a sense of fitting in, right? Because we walk in the door to the party or we go to work and people, oh, I love your shoes or I love your jacket or your bag or whatever it is. And that makes us feel good because we get that dopamine rush, right? And then, but you're what you're really pointing out is that by doing that, we may be making ourselves feel good in the moment, but there's a lot of other things that impacts that that may be having. We need to be aware of that. It's such a good point. I'm the, as you were talking about that, I was just thinking about how many marketers take advantage of that, you know, know that, know that, okay, if I market to a particular community, we can really make a killing because folks will want in, you know, they'll want to be in part of the in-group who has this thing. And then those companies might very well be turning around and using that money to support anti-LGBTQ plus politicians right. or policies. Right. And so I think it's important also to look at how sometimes decisions we make might be in fact working against your own self-interest. Right. You know, if you're inadvertently supporting things that don't really reflect your values, it's such a good point. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, we've talked about this before that especially at Pride there are some alcohol companies that you see at every single Pride. And mm -hmm. sometimes if you dig into who's running these companies, where is their money going, it's kind of surprising you would think like why are you even stepping foot close to pride based on what you're saying publicly as an individual or where the company's donating, uh, what organizations and politicians, the companies are donating to? What I saw a lot of parallels when David and I first started blogging, our tagline was be money conscious because we realized that one of the reasons we got into all of our debt was we were just spending unconsciously. We weren't paying attention to where our money was going, what we were buying. Um, we were just buying based on whatever felt good in the moment. 
And we thought we realized that when we were just a little bit more conscious with how we were spending our money, then our financial situation started to improve. And that's kind of what I'm hearing a lot from your book is just be more, I guess, be more money conscious, but more on a broader perspective. And don't just think that everybody, even if they are at pride, <laughs> that they're trying to actually serve you, um, they might just be benefiting from you and then using your money to vote against you. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. Yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of forms of, we call it greenwashing. Sometimes if companies try to make themselves seem more environmentally focused than they are, I don't know if, I haven't heard a specific term, but I think like pride washing or rainbow washing, rainbow you know, washing, yeah. like rainbow capitalism is the term yeah. a lot of folks throw around. I mean, most of the folks who are corporate entities at pride are trying to make money, you know, like that's why they're there. And I think it's important to remember that, that any company fundamentally in business to sell you something is always trying to sell you something. Every right. single thing they ever tell you is in the service of getting you to hand over your money. So I would maybe add to your statement of, you know, be money conscious, like remember that your money is powerful. That every time you are spending money or deciding where to save it or deciding, you know, where to give that money away, that you're transferring some power to someone else. And are you trying to transfer that to someone much more powerful than you who's working against your interests? Probably not. But so once you start seeing it that way as like a transfer of power, I think it becomes much easier to say no to some purchases that you know aren't aligned with your values and to make choices that hit closer to your heart in the interest of yourself and the interest of your community and the broader world. Absolutely. So I guess practically, how would you get started with that? Say you've read your book and you're inspired to start making change, but you know, I'm working 60 hours a week. I've got two kids. The dogs don't stop barking. How do I actually start implementing that in my life in a meaningful way where I'm actually providing value or affecting the change that I want to see in the world? Yeah, I think you could look at it a few different ways. And so I'm offering a couple options so that folks can sort of hear what resonates most with them. But so... I offer a exercise early in the book to think through your values because I think we all tend to know, oh, I lean more this way or I tend to feel strongly about this set of issues, but we rarely take a step back and think, okay, what are the values I actually want to reflect in the world? And if I had to prioritize the issues that I care most about, how would I prioritize them? And so, for example, if you care most about the climate crisis, and that is your top priority above everything, that's going to lead you to make some different choices than if your top issue is eliminating the racial wealth gap, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so focusing on the climate might mean trying to buy as little as you possibly can. It might mean trying to get rid of your car or really focusing on taking public transportation, reducing the fossil fuels you're burning. Whereas focusing on the racial wealth gap might lead you to spend more money in small businesses that support people of color and help to redistribute some of that wealth. And so those are two very different paths you could go down, which are both very positive and further mm -hmm. the cause of justice, but they're going to align more to your values. And I think of it as sort of like the tiebreaker, you know, where if you're choosing between two things and you know, okay, well, this is most important to me, that then makes the decision easier. So you might think about it that way of letting your values guide you. You might think about it a different way would be to look at your biggest expenditures are the biggest ways that you hold money in the world. So if you have a fair amount invested, you might look at how that's invested and say, does this align to my values and, and what I care about? And if it doesn't, you might change that, whether that's the company managing it for you and whether you support them or it's the things you're invested in. I'm actually somewhat controversially not uh, that big on thinking that responsible investing is super important for reasons that we can certainly talk about. But a different option would be to look at where you bank. That's something that folks don't realize that when you bank with a big bank, the money that's sitting in your savings account, sometimes even your checking account, is being lent out to fund a lot of stuff that you probably don't support, most notably things like new fossil fuel projects. And we have a situation in which our government won't regulate fossil fuels enough. We don't have enough global action on climate change and you know lots of other bad things. But we as consumers could actually refuse to continue banking with banks who are funding the fossil fuel industry and force change that way. Mm -hmm. So I think it's looking at all the different ways that you can make change. So changing to a credit union, a community bank, a black owned bank, 
is an incredibly powerful act that I think if you take one thing away from this book and you change where you bank, that is a huge win. And then the final way would be to look at like the biggest places that you spend money and to say, okay, are these companies I want to support both the retailer itself and the companies who make the things that you buy and say, am I comfortable with this? Do I want to scale this back? And it doesn't have to be about belaboring every single decision, but saying rather, you know, maybe I'll set a target to cut this spending in half, mm-hmm. which again, you know, one of the things that was really important to me with writing wallet activism is like, I want this to be accessible to people. There's this yeah. myth out there, which is wrong, that you have to be a wealthy person to make ethical decisions with your money. That like being ethical with your money means buying a Tesla. Never mind what a jerk Elon can be. It means buying Patagonia and, you know, certain status brands. And that's just not true. You know, withholding money, refusing to spend money is an incredibly powerful act. And that's good for your finances too, which is important. You know, we should never be having to jeopardize our own financial security to make good decisions in the world. So that was very much a a big part of my focus is making it accessible. Yeah. And I did love all that. Yeah. One of the things I really love that you're mentioning here is that the values need to be backed up by the action. And if you're listening, folks, you probably remember, I'm going to forget his name now. We had the discussion on the podcast of the difference between values and standards. And standards are what you're willing to do to actually back up those values. It's the least level of work that you're actually going to take. And it is very interesting how many people we hear talking about anti-capitalism or anti-rainbow capitalism, but then you look at the way that they're using their money in outward ways and you'd say, well, that that doesn't really seem to tie into what you're saying. And what you're saying is that by being money conscious and by being a true wallet activist, we want to take that those values and dig them deep into the the way that we act in the world. And that's, I think, a, a thing that many folks have a hard time doing because, as we mentioned earlier, we've been trained in many cases all our lives to fall into these traps of marketers or wanting to fit in or feeling like we're compelled to do certain things when it's really up to us. Every single dollar that we have, we get to make a choice with. Yeah, I do think it's important to give voice to the fact that people have different levels of resources and different ability levels. I'm very plugged in with the disability community and not every choice is available to everyone. You know, this, this pandemic has been really humbling to me personally. I have an immunodeficiency that I've had from birth. And so certainly before the vaccines came out, but again, lately I've been really reliant on grocery delivery. Well, you don't have an endless list of choices when you need your food delivered. You have to shop with some of the people you really don't want to shop with sometimes. And so I think it's a good reminder that we're all doing our best, you know, and I hope that in reading wallet activism, people find ways to make their best better some of the time. But I also don't want us to get into a, a discussion of you know who's doing it right or wrong or anything right. like that. Correct. You know, it's it's very much about working within your own resources and, like you said earlier, time available. Some folks have more of it; others have basically none. And so, it's doing what you can do and focusing on making progress over time. Not feeling like if I'm not doing everything in the book, I'm bailing. I'm not doing everything in the book, and I wrote it. Um, <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> so let's not even try to do that. You know, fair do disclosure. You do. Thank you for the fair <laughs> disclosure. Right. So it reminds me of several years ago, David and I and a bunch of our friends went to a musical. I don't know if it was called mixtape or if, if mixtape was just one of the names in the title. But there was a song called I'm Winning at Yoga. And it was everybody was on stage and they were all doing yoga, but then they started to compete with each other to see who was better at yoga, thereby negating the whole point of yoga. Right. <laughs> yeah. So we definitely don't want to do that. But I think that leads to a question. You know, humans are complex, right? We have lots of things that we want to achieve, lots of things that we want to do. And um, we have, you know, limitations and, and whatnot as well. So more and more LGBTQ people are starting to join the FIRE movement. And there's a lot of I guess the question is, is do people who are in the FIRE slash frugal movement bear any responsibility thwarting those or other similar areas that we're trying to balance? Also being you know, conscious with the effect that our DIYing things or the way that we spend our money might not necessarily be serving all of our desires? You know, maybe sometimes. I think that there are a whole bunch of different ways you can think about it. I do think that fundamentally, the idea of FIRE is based on the idea of stopping your accumulation once you have enough. 
And if everybody did that, we would be in a vastly different place as a society. The problems that we have are by and large created by people who don't stop, you know, who hoard the wealth, who get to levels of wealth that they can't possibly spend in 10 lifetimes, no matter how hard they try. And so I think on some level, the idea of figuring out what enough is for you, figuring out how you can live a modest standard of living forever and then stopping is really good. And I wish that we mm-hmm. had that conversation more in capitalism. That said, I think if you look at some of the specific practices, you know, one of the most harmful ones in the FIRE community is the way that people talk about rental real estate investing, where you hear people talk about it. You know, fundamentally, rental real estate is buying a property, renting it to people, making money on the process. And that's giving someone a home. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes providing a home for lower income people. But people don't talk about it that way. They use all these acronyms and jargon words and talk about profit margin and cap rate and all this stuff that sort of takes the human element totally out of it. And I look once in a while on some of the real estate discussion boards and see people talking about like, how soon is too soon to evict people and all this stuff where like being a slumlord is contributing negatively to society. It's taking advantage of people. And I think it's just worth asking if if rental real estate is something that's interesting to you. Do you really want to accumulate wealth on the back of poor people or people worse off than you? I don't think that we talk about that that way enough. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there's a lot of that behavior that is getting spread in fire world. And so I wish that we would talk about that in more human terms and talk about what we're really saying when we talk about going into, you know, certain neighborhoods that, okay, we're actually talking about poor neighborhoods that are ripe for exploitation. That said, that's not saying that rental real estate is inherently bad. Certainly, it it just the details matter. And I think likewise, with some of the investments that you can make, you know, most people I think are tending to look at index funds, which I think are relatively minor, you know, in the ethical infraction department. But if you're saying, okay, I'm going to do dividend investing and buy a whole bunch of Exxon mobile stock and really get wealthy off tobacco and fossil fuels, like that's not very ethical. (laughs) But by and large, that's not the conversation. So I think it's it's looking more closely at the details and looking at the choices we make and, and really asking ourselves, okay, what is this really? Here's how we talk about it, but what does this really represent? And if it represents taking advantage of others with less economic power than you have, you know, maybe reconsider. And then I think to your point, taking a closer look, but then also understanding, differentiating where there might be a lie. And I'm thinking specifically you know, in your book, my mother gets indignant when we talk about, you know, trying to stop using the plastic bags because she's like, all the liberals told me in the 80s and 90s that I had to go to the plastic bags to save the trees. So, and and I didn't realize until <laughs> it's a I remember that. It's an actual <laughs> conversation. And I and so when you talked about that in your book that you know, carbon offsets, I didn't know this, was invented by British Petroleum. There was a push to use plastic bags to save the trees. And this is becoming more and more apparent to David and me over the last couple of years, because the same trash truck comes and picks up both the regular garbage and the recycling, and somehow it all goes into the same, same, truck. same section. So I'm not exactly sure why that bucket out in the kitchen has to have a recycling uh, label on it. How do you differentiate between what we're being told and what's the lie and who's giving the message and so that you can align everything with what your values are. Yeah. I mean, honestly, a lot of it's not easy. And I I definitely remember, you know, when I was growing up in the eighties, it was all paper bags. You couldn't get a plastic bag at the store. And then somewhere along the line, yeah, plastic came along and that was supposedly better. Where now we really realize it's it's not like it's great to clear cut all the trees all the time, but Mm -hmm. trees can grow back. Whereas fossil fuels are destroying the climate every day and we need to try to leave them in the ground as much as we can. So I think that's the reflection of a different understanding. But in truth, it was probably that plastic bags were cheaper for the stores. So they figured out what was the best way to sell them to consumers. Who knows? <laughs> but that is a lot of what I wanted to do in the book was to just give some of that information about ways that people are being lied to. BP's main contribution was popularizing the idea of the carbon footprint. And that was the idea of helping individuals figure out their own individual climate impact, which sounds like a good thing until you understand that, well, BP is one of the largest polluters in the world. They're one of the biggest pumpers of oil out of the ground. Uh, They're responsible for all kinds of environmental degradation around the planet that's affected people. So them telling us to measure our carbon footprint is clearly not about 
buying less gas. That's their fundamental business. It's about making you go, oh, holy crap. Like I can't believe that it's that big and making you feel overwhelmed and making you feel that it's hopeless so that you don't try to change anything. Offsets are one of these like lovely things that are offered to try to make people feel like you can still commit this bad action. I'm saying bad in quotes, you know, something that has a climate impact that you wish it didn't have so that you can do it and not feel bad. But so many of the things that we do are messages that have been put into our heads by people with bad intent. So like plastic recycling, which is really a lie, very little plastic actually gets recycled just because it has the little triangle on it doesn't mean it's ever actually going to be recyclable anywhere. Almost nowhere actually recycles number four and five plastics, for example. So no yogurt container you've ever put in the trash has actually been recycled. And we get yogurt every we eat yogurt week. all the time. <laughs> I know, really I know, I love now. yogurt. <laughs> it's terrible. It's like, can we can we figure this out? Can we put it in a recyclable container? But but this is important stuff to know because the idea of plastic recycling was promoted by the plastic makers because right. they did research and they found that if you told people, hey, this thing you're buying will be recycled, then they no longer had any qualms about buying more plastic. That was like the rise of plastic recycling and the rise of plastic water bottles go hand in hand. I'm sure you guys remember, we're like all the same age, right? Mm-hmm. When we were kids, there you couldn't buy a bottle of water. Right. That wasn't a thing. You could buy a soda. Maybe you could buy juice in a can or something like that, but there wasn't bottled water other than like Perrier or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and that came in and, glass. <laughs> and that, exactly. That came in very recyclable glass. Glass is generally pretty good and gets recycled at a very high rate. But so... It's just good to know this stuff. And I wanted people to feel armed with the things that would never be self-evident. Wouldn't be obvious that offsets are generally not great. You know, that plastic is almost never getting recycled. So I just wanted to fill in some of those knowledge gaps for things that aren't routinely talked about. So that now, if you go look at something packaged in plastic, you're going to view it differently. And you're going to say, how badly do I really need that thing? Or could I get it a different way? Could I get it packaged in something different? It's just all about helping to fill in some of those gaps that marketers have deliberately left blank for us or have deliberately filled with the wrong information so that we would stop questioning things and just do what we're told by them. Right. And I think you also made it very poignant in your book that most of us have limited resources, right? So the idea that we're going to go, going to be able to all buy wooden toothbrushes and dishwashing liquids that come in cartons and have all, you know, all that more, because they tend to charge for those things, those more recyclable things. But your argument in the book is that do what you can do. Don't overstress yourself about it if you can't do more, because really the responsibility is on the uber wealthy to do more than they actually are. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. You know, folks who feel that they can't afford to do anything that's in the book, the good news is they're not really contributing to all this stuff. You know, we know that the climate crisis has been caused by people who are wealthy in a global sense. And that's much less money than you might think. You know, if you earn $40,000 a year in the US, you are definitely wealthy in a global sense. But we know that the folks who are going to McDonald's because they can't afford other food are not the problem. And we shouldn't shame them for the single use food packaging that they're generating. We should focus on the millionaires, the billionaires, the folks who are, you know, living in a much bigger house than they need and having to climate control it around the clock. The people who are flying a ton, stuff like that, you know, and that's, that's not to say that like, let's all get really angry and go after individuals, but more just that we need to recognize that if you are a higher income person, you do bear more responsibility. And so you have more to change than someone who has limited resources. To those whom much is given, much is expected. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> did I, I did I interrupt you? <laughs> no, you're right. Heard a rumor about annuities? Cut out the noise by visiting Queer Money podcast sponsor Gainbridge at gainbridge.life to learn more. One of the things that I think about, of course, I'm more often than not, folks don't know on this podcast, I'm looking at this through the lens of a cis gay man, right? So what the way I see the world is part of the way of is partly who I am. So oftentimes then I start to think about the, the mistakes that I've made in the past and all of this. So one of the things that we know gay men are known for, and by kind of tangentially, drag queens are known for is being fashionable and and having flair right (laughs) right so how do we balance this right how do we balance this idea of i want to look good i want to be fashionable 
but I also want to be a good global citizen. Is it possible? And then I guess the the question is, well, how can we make the better choices like you're recommending? I think it's definitely possible. And I'm not trying to steal everyone's joy and say you can never buy a new thing again. Dream squasher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think that it's it's good to look at, okay, this thing I want to buy, am I going to wear this one time, 10 times, 100 times? And to try to put things in perspective, if it's something you're going to wear 100 times, if you can find a more ethically produced version, that's great. You know, Can you find a pair of jeans that were not made by sweatshop workers in Bangladesh earning two cents an hour in a factory that's at constant risk of collapsing. Um, for example, like if you can do that, if you can find um, garments that were made in the US, typically they're going to have better manufacturing standards, although US made doesn't mean what it once did, unfortunately. But those are things that you can generally feel okay about. What I would love to see us all cut down on are the things we're going to wear 10 times or one time. Right. And look instead at can you borrow something from someone? Could you buy it secondhand? I know that the out of the closet thrift shop in West Hollywood had like the most incredible clothing selection you've ever seen in your life uh, because so many people. That reason, right? Because people just buy it yeah. at once, right? <laughs> right. And so, you know, like making use of that and sort of normalizing that and making that not seem like something that only poor people do or something that lower class people do sort of normalizing the secondhand use or the the creative sharing can go really a tremendous way to cutting down on our reliance on newly manufactured goods. And then also, I think the demand piece is important too. So then if there's less demand for things because Mm -hmm. people are making an effort to share things or acquire them secondhand, then that forces the existing manufacturers and retailers to start asking questions and saying, well, how could we attract some of this business back? Could we make our practices more ethical? Could we pay our workers a living wage? What would it take to get you to shop here again? And that can all be a really powerful force for good. So it does maybe require doing some rethinking and that might sometimes feel a little painful, but there's just such a tremendous potential to create change that way that I hope folks will take that seriously and, and really think about it. I think you know you mentioned this in your book and we had heard this, David's stepson is getting into the fashion industry and he told us a couple of years. I didn't know this and maybe our listeners and viewers don't know this, but so much of the fashion, especially by the high-end brands that's made, eventually if it doesn't get purchased within the, the small window of time when it's supposed to be fashionable, that a lot of it is destroyed like by actually setting it on fire. That, that was profound to me. And, and so I think to your point, if reducing the, the demand isn't just reducing what's actually in the store, it's reducing all the stuff that's getting burned and all, the, all those fossil fuels and everything else that's going up into the yeah. environment. And I also recently heard this this past weekend about a huge area that's in the desert. It's in uh, Chile, right? In the Atacama Desert? Yeah, where they where all of these clothes are being dumped, and there's just yep. this massive number of clothes that are just thrown in this area where nobody is living, mm-hmm. and it's just well, I mean, we know, you know those are probably man-made fibers that are gassing out, and they're never gonna, they're never going to eventually disintegrate. It's just going to be this massive crap. <laughs> you know, someday somebody's yeah, got to deal clothing- with it. Clothing is is really an issue, both in terms of the manufacturing and the treatment of workers on the front end, as well as, yeah, this idea of what we do with things that either don't sell or that we're done with. And apparently that big um, stack of clothes in the desert in South America, a ton of the things there have tags on, you know, they've never been worn or right. maybe weren't sold. There's also the issue that a lot of the things that people donate to a thrift store thinking that they're doing good, that, you know, someone else will benefit from my clothing a lot of that stuff is ending up in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's in fact ruined quite a few local textile industries because it has so flooded them with our cast-offs. And in a lot of cases, I mean, like thinking that someone wants to wear your old t-shirts, I mean, who wants that? So a lot of that stuff then just becomes trash, but it's now the problem of impoverished nations rather than, you know, wealthy nations who should be dealing with their own products. So the idea of just giving things away isn't the perfect solution that we might wish it was. I know I would love to be able to donate things and know that they're for sure going to go to a good home with someone who will use them, but it's unfortunately just not the case. And so it's good to be both intentional about what we bring in to our lives and into our homes, but also how we end the life of something because that has an impact. Right. And I think that's a great segue into my next question. 
you talk about the hidden consequences of philanthropy, right? A lot of us, you know, donating our clothing because we want to, we want to lessen our impact on the environment and also help somebody else who we think needs our clothing. There's also, I, I, I had never put it into these terms before, the consequences of philanthropy where we think we're actually helping when we're not actually. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, yeah. I mean, the philanthropy landscape, we'd like to think that, you know, you've got all these nonprofits who are doing great work where they're saying, okay, we see this need on the ground. And so we want to work on this and, hey, everybody give us money for that purpose. There's a little bit of that, but by and large, so much of the philanthropy that's happening around the world is what it is because of billionaire philanthropists saying, hey, I decided that this is my new priority and I'm going to fund this. And so then you've got all these nonprofits who have you know, very small budgets and are reliant on fundraising dollars. So they say, okay, you said jump, I say how high, you know, Mm -hmm. what is it that you want me to do? And that's resulted in all kinds of bad things around the world. You know, in the US, it's resulted in priorities shifting, and then a whole field of activists will suddenly be out of a job uh, because that thing is no longer funded anymore because the billionaire said so. Or in countries around the world, like India, had to kick out basically every international non-governmental organization because they were doing so many things that the government felt was harmful. And there have been countless cases in sub-Saharan Africa, especially about folks coming in and trying to practice philanthropy in ways that didn't really suit the needs of the local population, where you'd have like a big staff in the US, but then no staff in Africa to say, well, what do folks here actually say that they want or will help them? And so a lot of imposition, what you might call neo-colonialism of people sort of wanting to exert their power over others in ways that weren't even helpful. The best thing that we can do as individuals, unfortunately, the system is so broken. You know, it'd be great if we just were taxed appropriately and then some of that money could go to fund the right priorities so that we as voters could hold the government accountable for those priorities. But instead, billionaires get to set a lot of those priorities. So we as individuals, the best thing we can do is both give more to nonprofit organizations, uh, but also give in a more regular way. So if you give once a year, that's certainly better than not giving, but organizations can't really budget with that money if it comes in in an unpredictable way. Think about like, if you got a paycheck once a year, you have to be really careful and you don't want to spend money that might not come. But if it's coming monthly, if you set up an automatic donation, then now those organizations can budget and they can focus on what they know needs to happen rather than what the billionaire philanthropists say needs to happen. So I really encourage folks, if there are causes you care about, you know, there are things you can do that might happen later that are great, like leaving a big bequest when you die, leaving your property behind if you have some, but don't wait, you know, give as much as you can now and try to do it on a monthly or at least quarterly basis if you're able so that we can offset some of that toxic billionaire money. Yeah. Well, we interviewed the executive director of development and gardening dig, which is which was founded out of um, Denver, Colorado. But she had told us that they love the big one-time donations. It's fabulous. It, it really helps them out. But what they would really love to have more of is the small reoccurring monthly contributions, something that they, totally. can, they can totally predict and then strategize to actually make a, an impactful change um, based on what they expect to be getting. Yeah, I think that's, it's, it's just like us, right? We would like to have that regular paycheck and then get the bonus maybe once or twice a year. And that's the fun money, right? But you plan your life around the money that you make on a regular basis. Exactly. It was was interesting. We also interviewed one of the individuals that helped start that organization, Development and Gardening, on the podcast. And he talked about when he was living in, I can't remember, was Sudan? Or I can't remember where he was living now that I'm trying to call it to mind. But he talked about how he lived, literally lived in the villages with these people who were HIV positive. And he said it was so odd to see once a week up would pull the giant white SUV with the big, everybody knows these, organi- these US organizations that give away a lot of, or allegedly give away a lot of money. They show up, they're there for two hours during the day, and then they take the four-hour trip back into the major metropolitan area there because they would never consider living out there with those people. And he was just said, you know, you, you just see the difference between these people are, I don't want to say that they're faking it, but they're just not doing it with the genuineness of trying to discover on a day-to-day what do these people need. They assume this is what these people need. And you mentioned colonialism, right? They're trying to impress upon these people. You need to live this way in order to be a contributing member of the world. And that's not what those people truly need. 
Yeah. I mean, if, if you're able and you're interested in giving to causes that serve people overseas in particular, it's great if you can do some homework and figure out if, if there's a way that you can give to organizations based in the countries they're serving rather than organizations based in the U.S. or in other wealthy nations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's a more likely guarantee that they're going to operate in a way that is reflective of what local people want and need rather than imposing some sort of outside set of values on them. It's not always easy, particularly if you're trying to get a tax deduction, but often with doing a little homework, you can find something. Or sometimes with organizations, they might have a U.S.-based foundation that exists solely to fund their work overseas so that Mm. you can get the tax write-off. So it's worth doing some digging um, to try to figure that out. Those organizations that go in for a couple of hours and then go back to the major metropolitan area, would you say that's sort of like woke washing on like a grand scale? Is that? Um, I think of woke washing is more like the companies who post the the black square on Instagram and say, we stand with Black Lives Matter and you look at their board and it's 100% straight white men. Yeah. Um, like that, that's more where I'd put that, but it's not good. You know, I, I think imposing our views or making help contingent, like a, a, an example that I'm sure most people can relate to is the idea of there's a homeless person and they're asking for money and you say, well, I don't want to give you money because what are you going to do with it? Like, can you imagine if at work your boss said, well, I don't want to give you your paycheck because I clear on how you're going to use it. And I maybe don't approve of how you're going to use it. Like we all expect to have freedom in how we make our own choices, but Mm -hmm. then we don't extend that same freedom to others. I don't tend to give cash to people who seem to be experiencing homelessness only because I don't carry cash, but rather than say like, oh, I'm going to buy you this thing and go and say, Hey, what do you need right now? Like, can I buy you something? And if it's a $1 bottle of water. I, I hate plastic water bottles, but like if a person in need needs that water, I will suck it up and buy that. Or if it's a $20 meal, or I bought someone a bag of groceries recently because she clearly was hungry. And that goes so much farther, but like asking them and, and not judging it. You know, I've told people like, if you want something you don't want to ask me for, it's okay. Just like, I'll get you what you need. But that it was a learning process for me to get there because I think we all have that feeling where it's so ingrained in us of, oh, I don't want to support someone's drug habit or Really, philanthropy is kind of doing that, but on a much larger scale of saying, like, I want to help, but it comes with all these strings and it can only be on my terms, not based on what you actually need. When you, when I read that part of your book, I, it made me think of a story about C.S. Lewis. He was walking with a friend one day and he gave a homeless person some money. And his friend said, You know, that all that person's going to do is go use that money to drink. And C.S. Lewis's response was, At the end of the day, that's really all I'm going to do with it anyway. Right. Yeah. So what's the difference? (laughs) So fundamentally, what would you say is the enemy of wallet activism? How do we sort of turn this ship around in a a significant enough way that it actually makes change? Indifference is really the enemy. And and I say that with, with love and compassion, because I know that a lot of that indifference has been indoctrinated into us unintentionally, you know, that we've been led to believe over and over that our actions don't matter that they don't add up, that the choices we make are just, you know, are too small to make a difference in in the broader scheme of things. And it's just not true. You know, there's both Mm -hmm. the broader impact that happens, you know, if even 1% of consumers change our ways meaningfully, that adds up to a huge amount. You know, Mm -hmm. if we could cut carbon emissions globally by 1%, that would go a long way to reaching the climate goals, actually. And so we're not talking about everyone having to totally give up their way of life or anything like that. But people forget that, you know, and I see well-meaning people all the time post things on Twitter of like, well, I knew this was bad, but then I heard that this company is doing X, Y, and Z. And so I really realized what does it matter what I do? And it's like, no, those companies want you to feel that way. That's what they want you to conclude so that you keep giving them money and don't question it. You know, you don't say anything that might hurt their reputation. You just go with the consumerist flow. And so if you can kick yourself out of that mindset and sort of reject that attempt to make you feel indifferent, I think that that's an incredibly powerful act. And I I come back a lot to this little parable where I can't remember when I first heard it. I feel like it's a kid's story and I probably heard it at summer camp or something. Man's walking down the beach and he comes across another man who's out there and it's, it's low tide and the beach is just covered with starfish. And this man is picking up a starfish and chucking it out into the ocean like a discus and then coming back and getting another starfish and chucking it out. And the man who's been walking on the beach comes up to him and says, you know, why do you bother? There are so many starfish and there's just you. You know, why does it matter that you're doing this when you can't help them all? And the guy goes, it matters to this starfish. 
I say that to myself a lot. It matters to this starfish, you know, on a certain level, like even if what you're doing feels small, it matters to that person who would have packaged your Amazon package and maybe gotten injured on the job that day. It matters to the fast food worker who hopefully can get better pay. Uh, you know, that's the great thing about the great resignation is it's, it is definitely giving more power to workers, which no, is a really don't positive, you love it? positive thing. Or don't I you just like so log much. on the news every day? And you're like, <laughs> how many people quit today? Let's do away with the, the $2.13 minimum wage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For, yeah. for food workers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, it matters on both the large scale, but also on the, the micro scale. And when we say micro, that's people. Those are humans, you know, and it matters. And so if you need that reminder, I offer it for that purpose. But yeah, it matters to this starfish. I say that to myself all the time. Yeah. And, and I, you know, when reading your book, there were times I was just like, oh my God, this is, we're just ruined. We should just go to Mars and try to start over again with, with <laughs> sure. better people this time. And it can with feel better like, people, but they're all <laughs> part of the human race. So yeah, eventually right. you're going to have some. Who's going to get us there? there. <laughs> so it can feel kind of heavy, but, and I did tell myself like, you know, every little change matters, right? Even, even if it's small, it can have an effect. And so it kind of, I think a great way to wrap up this interview is, is your anecdote at the, at the end of the book, because it can feel too hard sometimes uh, that there's too much to fix, but you talked about the rapid reduction in pet euthanasia. I think was it the seventies and eighties. I have that wrong. That no, sort of more recently can be a parallel to the changes we want to make here. Yeah. So one of the things that I talked about at the, the conclusion of the book to remind us to be more mindful is I, I have cited some stats that I was able to find. So in 2012, half of the animals taken in by shelters in LA were ultimately euthanized. And in 2018, only six years later, the number was down to 9%. So fewer than one in 10 when it had been half. And over the same period, Phoenix went from 46% to 4%. Philly went from 36 to 13 Fort Worth went from 41 to 9%. And that was a trend that basically every big city observed on some level. And the only thing that changed in that time was that it became cool to adopt shelter pets. You know, the adopt don't shop hashtag was all over social and people were talking about rescue animals as like this status thing instead of some tragic <laughs> choice. And we had already had a big reduction in euthanasia from the 60s, like you mentioned, before animals were routinely spayed and neutered. And so that was the old animal rights frontier was like, please spay and neuter your pets. You might remember Bob Barker. Always I was just going to say, Bob Barker, yeah. the price is right. <laughs> exactly. Because that used to be the issue that there weren't enough spayed or neutered animals. So they were having a lot of animals and that was pushing the euthanasia rates up. But we'd gotten to a point where that was much better, but still a ton of pets were getting killed in the shelters um, because they couldn't find homes for them. And so just a little thing with some people saying adopt, don't shop and talking about their shelter pets and how great they were made a huge, huge, huge difference in six years. I mean, yeah. that's like a blink of an eye. And that to me is a reminder, you know, you can look at lots of examples of things that seem really bleak, seem unchangeable and change actually happened very quickly. And that's how change always is. You know, that was what I spent my career doing was focusing on social change movements and it feels like change is never going to happen. Like it's so far off until all of a sudden everything flips. Mm -hmm. And there are just so many examples of that. But I thought that the, the shelter pet example was a powerful one to put it in concrete terms and show how it really changed in places all over the country so quickly. So it's a reminder to me that these efforts do matter and that we do have the power to change things and that it's important to talk about them. Yeah. That, you know, if, if people had started adopting shelter pets but not talked about it on social, I don't think we would have seen that big issue. So it requires both sides. It requires changing some of what we're doing, but also being willing to share it with others and not in a judgy way, not to say you have to do this or you're a bad person. I think a good framing way to talk about change often is to say, you know, I knew I needed to do this, but it just seemed like it was going to be really hard but I made this change and it was actually so much easier than I, something like that, that shows that you had the hesitation that people can relate to. And then it was easier than I thought is, is really great encouragement. That's a good way that you can bring it up. But yeah, it's so good to talk about this stuff and try to change some of the social norms. You know, the things we do now, none of this is baked in. We are society. Society is us. Culture mm -hmm. is us. We decide what we hold up on pedestals and what we refuse to dignify. And so I think we should focus on the stuff that furthers the cause of justice. I love it. That's a great way to wrap up, wrap up the interview. So folks, if you um, haven't gotten a copy of Wallet Activism, we encourage you to do so. It was 
it was very uh, challenging for me to read in, in terms of making me think of how I can just be be better at, at how I shop and how I purchase and how I vote with my dollar and the way that we use products and services that um, are seemingly super affordable. But when you think about it, they're, they might not necessarily be as affordable as, as you thought they were. So Tanya, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It's exciting. I can't believe it's been, we've been around for so long and this is the first time we've had you on. So thank you so much for your time and we appreciate it. <laughs> thank you so much for reading the book and inviting me on. I really had a blast. Well, and thank you for being an ally for the community. We appreciate that. You know, it, uh, that's just, that is just as important as those of its inside this, the community speaking. And I think that there's a lot of lessons in your book. I don't know how many times John and I were talking about things. I'm like, this is so pragmatic and practical. We can do this. And as you mentioned, just small changes, little change, little by little, a little becomes a lot, right? So this is a good lesson. John and I have some reflecting to do as well. (laughs) Well, and I, I think the point also is so important that we have this bad habit of putting things in opposition to one another. You know, we'll often see climate choices put in opposition to the needs of poor people or disabled people. Or, you know, I've seen things positioned as like, you either support LGBTQ plus rights or you support this other thing. Like, no, (laughs) these things are not in competition. We are all on the same side here of more justice for more people. And so, yes, (laughs) it just seems like such a no brainer, but we're so trained to try to say, well, I can only support one or the other. And that's just not true. We can do it all. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, folks, stick around for our Queer Money takeaway from this episode. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Queer Money Podcast. Here's your Queer Money takeaway from this episode. As Tanya said, small changes can have a big impact. So get a copy of Tanya's book and see how you can make one small change to turn your values into action. Remember to subscribe to the Queer Money Podcast newsletter via the link in your podcast player so that you can have a chance to win a copy of this book in March. Then join us next week for episode 306 when we answer Ash's question about how to balance finances as a couple when one person makes a whole lot more money than the other. (laughs) Finally, we make the Queer Money podcast for you, so please post your money questions in the Queer Money Facebook group. We may answer your question in an upcoming episode. Thank you, and we'll talk with you next week.